Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. This is uh, Nira Zakovich from UMass Boston, and this is our uh, podcast series, Ethics in Action. And this morning, my colleague and old friend, um, Gabe von Platz, a philosophy professor at the University of Richmond, is going to be our guest. Hi, Gabe. Hello, Nir. How are you? Good. And um, we are going to be uh, talking with... Uh, Yebe about his uh, new research project on uh, social democracy. Yebe, you just published a, a book on theories of justice, right? Well, it's coming out in March. Uh, it's done, but it's not out yet. It'll be out in March. So congratulations, first of all. That's Thank good. you. Yeah, it's nice. And um, so um, maybe tell me a little bit uh, how you became interested in uh, writing about social democracy why it's timely for you now or for us now. Right. Um, so to start with the obvious, I am from Denmark. I lived most of my life in Denmark. And so uh, I have some firsthand acquaintance with uh, a so- so-called social democracy. Uh, I came to the United States to study political philosophy, uh, not knowing that I would be working on social democracy, but very interested in questions of economic justice, uh, questions of legitimacy, and questions about the choice of economic system. And then uh, what happened is basically what happens to a lot of expats. You get this rosy picture of where you came from. uh, And I'm more or less using my expat rosy glasses to look at the Scandinavian model for organizing economic society and trying to make sense of it. Uh, trying to explain and justify uh, a social democratic approach to the organization of economic society. And so I was working on theories of economic justice more broadly and have been working on that for a long time. And more and more I came to see that social democracy can be presented um, as a theory of economic justice. And so social democratic regimes can be explained and justified as expressions of principles of economic justice. And thus construed, uh, they have attractions in addition to the obvious of being, you know, moderately stable, fairly successful, calm places. But there is actually sort of a more, a deeper justification that can be given for social democracy, uh, which is the theory of justice, which has hitherto not been uh, construed by any political philosophers I know of. Uh, And so I'm trying to construct that and show that there is a distinct theory of economic justice that can justify social democratic regimes and which is sort of a new member of the family of theories of economic justice. And it's, of course, going to be closely related to, say, a Rawlsian justice as fairness or democratic socialism. But I think it is its distinct, its own thing. uh, And I'm trying to make sense of that. So how, how would you start outlining that theory of economic justice? Yeah. 
that that it's hard, right? Um, so I'm going to start with a, with a bit of methodology um, to set it up, and then I'm going to try to to outline it. So methodologically, I think rather than just giving an analytical statement of the theory as I see it, I would like the theory to both fit and justify the actual sort of history of social democratic movements in Northern Europe. Uh, so to explain and justify how they came to be what they came to be. And so my project starts with a bit of history. I'm not a historian. It's not going to be, you know, original uh, history, uh, but it's going to be a setup that focuses especially on the history in Germany and Scandinavia and looks at how the worker movements got organized into social democratic movements, how these social democratic movements initially were straight up Marxist socialism, then developed to become something more along the lines of a democratic socialism, and finally uh, shed basically the socialist part of social democracy and became wedded to a capitalist design of the economy and the justification of that. And so I'm going to do the setup. Uh, it's historical looking at the actual uh, history of these movements. And then the hope is the analytical statement of the theory can fit, explain, justify these movements and what they came to be. So then that takes me to the, the analytical statement of the theory as I see it. And this is still very much work in progress. But the, the foundational idea is a view of society. And I think that's true for all theories of justice. They start with a conception of why we live together in societies. And out of that conception comes the normativity the prescriptions for how we ought to live together. And the social democratic vision of society is society as a, the Rawlsian idea of a system of social cooperation is helpful here, but I think of it as working together, not just for mutual benefit, but for the creation of all the things that we need and desire to make our lives go well. So that's not just material goods, like comfortable abodes and you know food and water and all that it's also uh, cultural enrichments it's also health services it's also education services that we all need to become good human beings uh, and so it's a the, the bundle of goods that we work together to create is much more than just the commodities we can buy at stores say uh, but that bundle of goods we cannot live without there is no human life without that bundle of goods but also we cannot create it on our own and it won't be created merely by coordinated activities of uh, distributed individuals. We have to actually work together to create all that stuff. So, so the slogan of social democracy, just to finish that thought, is working together, right? And is that cooperative working together relationship from which we can generate uh, a theory of justice, from that idea of working together in the production and distribution of all these uh, goods we need. Yeah. So in that first claim, I see there could be two arguments. One is if you want a normative argument, which is we can't live well without these preconditions having to do with cultural goods, mm -hmm. uh, health and education. And the other, um, is more of an empirical argument that we can't create these goods on our own, that you need institutional support for having them. Um, so the first sort of normative argument that 
I take it for you, as for many social democrats, would rest on a conception of what a good life is? Yes, but it's tricky, because it's not a conception of a good life in the sense that you only live a good life if you do these things or that you have to pursue these particular ends or anything like that. It's more, and as you nicely articulated, there are preconditions for living Mm-hmm. as such, but especially for living a good life that include access to these various goods. Yeah. Um, but of course, what the good life then consists in, that's up for each individual to make up their own mind about and pursue as they can uh, within the rules of the game that uh, society provides. But, but it does prescribe what kind of good life you choose right from the get-go, given that, as you say, we can't do this on our own and therefore a pretty massive involvement of government in our lives is going to be required. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, So it's not part of the conception of the good life here that you work together. But, you know, working together is going to be a precondition for having access to all the things you need to live a good life, however you conceive it. And so actually participating in the cooperative relationship is not some optional uh, fact of life. It's, you know, if we don't cooperate to produce all this stuff, we won't have access to the things we need to live well together. Um, And so to live well together, we have to work together and to work together. Well, then you can get all kinds of principles, normative principles out of that set of ideas. Uh, Of course, there will be people who opt out. And the judgment is not that you can't live a good life if you opt out, because you might be able to live a good life if you opt out, if other people cooperate for the production of all these things you need, right? So you can free ride on the uh, activities of others and live a good life. That's perfectly possible. So you don't have to work to live a good life, but some people have to work Mm -hmm. for all of us to have access to live a good life. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... uh... So if I go back again to articulate how I understand what you're saying, mm-hmm. there's a group of preconditions that is required for living this kind of life. And since we can't achieve those preconditions alone, we have to work together to achieve them. And then I take it that the working together also begins a kind of virtuous cycle that then moves you to want to keep doing this because you become connected to the people you work together with. and. Well, that, that's certainly a hope. Um, I don't know that it's built into the idea. So there's, there's um, so one thing, uh, which is not a correction, but an addition, and then the answer to the question. So the thing that is an addition is, so of course there are all these things we need. These are preconditions for living a good life, but there are also things we simply desire. And we also have to work together to create the things we desire. So it's not enough that we have some education, we desire a good education, right? It's not enough that we have a house. We want a nice house with, you know, access to all the amenities of uh, um, existence. Uh, So that too, we have to cooperate to produce. And there's going to be, and this is where the sort of uh, question or the theory of economic justice has its handle. There's going to be the question of, what is a sort of fair or justifiable distribution of the burdens of creating all these things as well as the benefits, that is, the things we create, right? So the question of distribution immediately falls out of the idea of working together to create these things that invites norms of fairness for the distribution of the burdens, 
that is all the work we do and work is burdensome, but also uh, of the distribution of the benefits, the wealth in the broad sense. So that said, now there is, uh, I think, and this is, I, I'm not clear about this myself yet, but so in a Marxist socialist theory or standard socialist theory, you find a conception of the human good that involves productive activity itself as part of what you enjoy doing. So yes, in a capitalist society, we might be lazy and hate work, but that's because capitalist society alienates us from how we ought to be and conceive of ourselves. And in a good society, we would actually not see work as burdensome, as sort of an effort we have to engage in to get stuff we want. The work itself, would be something we do uh, because we desire to do it. That's a socialist uh, idea. It's very attractive, um, and it would be nice if it's true. I don't want social democracy to be wedded to that idea in the sense that you're committed to it and stuff in the position relies on that actually being true. I think for most people in human existence and the human future, work is going to be burdensome. It's going to be something you do because you want something in return. Uh, it's not going to be an end in itself. It's going to be a means to ends. And so that then makes the question of the distribution of the burdens so much more um, pertinent, right? Because it's not something we want to do. And when, when people scrub toilets, they don't do it for fun. They do it in expectation of a reward. And that reward should then be commensurate somehow with their standing as co-producers of all the good stuff. And of course, there are a lot of questions about what is then commensurate with their standing as co-producers, but that's where the principles of economic justice step in. Mm -hmm. So where does the, so we have in place the assumption of basic goods required for living a tolerable life, and we have the assumption of the need to work together in order to produce those. Um, where, where, where do we go next analytically? So analytically, uh, we go from those assumptions uh, to principles of justice that should govern the distribution of the benefits and burdens of the cooperative relationship. And from that, we can then generate, from those principles of justice, we can then generate institutional implications how we ought to organize both uh, economic and political society. And the hypothesis of my project is that those institutional implications that are required will be roughly of the sort that are imperfectly realized in Northern European social democratic countries, and that are the commitments of actual social democratic movements and political parties. So the working hypothesis is that when I get to the institutional implications from the foundational view of society via principles of justice to the institutional implications, when I get to those institutional implications, of course they don't match up or fit directly with how any particular society is organized, but they will be institutional implications that make sense of the work that social democratic movements are engaged in to change society, and they will also be able to explain and justify um, the northern social democratic uh, societies. So right. what, are, <clears throat> what are the principles of justice? Right, I'm going a bit back and forth on that. Um, so there's of course gonna be, so let me distinguish between uh, the principles that govern the enablement 
of social cooperation, of working together, and the principles that govern the distribution of the burdens and benefits of the cooperative relationship. So all members of society should be guaranteed access to whatever are the institutional and social preconditions for engaging in the cooperative relationship as an equal. So there should be access to whatever bundle of goods are necessary to engage in working together, right? So there should be basic training, basic healthcare, uh, basic education, stuff like that, so that no member of society is left outside or without the possibility to engage in the cooperative relationship. There's going to be questions about severe disabilities here that I have to put to the side for now, and they might be very hard and also troubling questions. Troubling not just, you know, in the sense that it's troubling as a human being, but troubling for the theory that it does not on its own provide any sensible answers to questions about uh, access for disabled. Um, but I'm bracketing that for now. And that's going to be, that's generally true for the type of theory that I'm pursuing that we have that problem. Uh, okay, so that's the enabling part. And there's going to be then a constitutional guarantee for whatever the institutional preconditions are for access to the cooperative relationship. Then secondly, there's going to be uh, the distribution of the burdens themselves, right? So there has to be some measure, perhaps a very strong measure of equal opportunity so that we know that the distribution of work, of labor, the burdens, is not distributed as a function of you know, race or gender or social class or anything like that, but as a function of a combination of the talents you provide and the efforts you provide uh, for cultivating and employing those talents. So there's going to be uh, some kind of what's called fair equality of opportunity. Uh, and perhaps, I mean, so far some rules here, right? Um, but there's more, it, it's justified in a different way than, uh, than, than Rawls does it. Uh, and it, and it, there, there might be the detail, uh, differences in detail. And then finally, the distribution of the benefits. Well, some of the benefits we already distributed, uh, namely the access to the essentials for becoming and maintaining yourself as a cooperative member of society. Those preconditions are already guaranteed for all on an equal basis. And then, of course, there's going to be the wealth we create, the excess that is created in addition to what's needed to maintain our cooperative relations. There's going to be an excess. Social cooperation is productive. We create good stuff and we have to distribute that. I'm inclined to think that if you have secured uh, fair quality of opportunity and access for all, then there shouldn't be much distributing going on. We can leave that to free market processes to distribute the rest of the wealth. And that's, of course, a very dangerous thing for a social democrat to say because there are dangers of wealth inequality that uh, has to have to be bracketed. So we can have indirect regulation of wealth inequalities, wealth and income inequalities. Um, but it's not justified directly as everyone should get an equal share of the wealth or everyone should get, you know, uh, the share that if we sum up all the shares, we maximize the total prosperity or anything like that. Rather, we allow the free market to distribute, uh, to determine incomes by and large, uh, and to distribute the wealth. And then we have um, triggers in place to prevent wealth inequalities from becoming so severe that they undermine social stability, undermine political equality, 
there's a democratic background commitment here to political equality. And if wealth, if and when wealth inequality threatens political equality, well, then we have to do something about it. If and when it threatens equality of opportunity, we have to do something about it. So there can be all kinds of indirect justifications for regulating wealth inequalities, maybe also incomes, right? Uh, but if you have secured fair equality of opportunity and that the parties in the labor market negotiate uh, for the spoils on roughly equal terms so that labor is empowered to assert itself. It has both voice exit options and some power to actually uh, counter against capital. Well, then a free market system, a capitalist system can actually achieve uh, a distribution of wealth and income that over time can be seen as fair to all members of society, even though there will be wealth inequalities and income inequalities, and even though those wealth and income inequalities cannot be said in any meaningful way to track merit or desert or anything like that. Some people will get lucky and they will be richer because of their luck. And some theories of justice will say that's an injustice, we have to correct for it. I don't think social democrats are wedded to that at all. Remember, we work together for the creation uh, of all these good things. And if it can be argued, as I think it can, that capitalism is actually the most productive system. And if we can have sufficient safeguards in place that we maintain equal opportunity, political equality, stuff like that over time. Well, then the distribution of the wealth created by this supremely productive system called capitalism. Well, we don't have to worry too much about that as long as it doesn't threaten other things we care about. And so then I take it that the institutional implications of these kinds of principles of justice are, like you were saying, broadly the standard uh, institutional landscape that you find in the Northern European welfare states? Yeah, broadly, uh, broadly. Uh, so I think for the institutional implications, some things that are easily overlooked. Uh, so the obvious is going to be universal health care, universal education. That's going to be uh, required to guarantee both access to the cooperative relationship and equality of opportunity over time. So that's mandatory. More importantly and easily overlooked, not more importantly, but easily overlooked, is a very strong empowerment of labor uh, and the capacity for labor to bargain with capital in a manner that situates them roughly as equals in the bargaining relationship. Without that, capitalism tends to accumulate capital in the hands of capitalists and uh, to undermine the ability for labor to get any of the spoils, any of the benefits. And so to ensure a fair distribution of the benefits of cooperation, it is absolutely essential that labor is empowered. Only when labor is sufficiently empowered that capital has to share with labor will the sharing that goes on between the capital labor split itself will only be fair if there's a rough equal bargaining power between capital labor so one of the things where social democracy is very far from socialism of any strike whether marxist or democratic socialist or what have you is that it embraces capitalism as the basic design of the economic system for the production distribution and consumption of goods but that embrace, of course, is also the embrace of class society. There's going to be capitalists and non-capitalists in a society, in a social democratic society. And the embrace of classes or class society is very dangerous unless you also secure that the laboring uh, part of the population, the working class, is sufficiently empowered 
that the capital labor split is going to be fair over time. Mm-hmm. Only when you have that roughly equal bargaining power between capital and labor will labor be able to, you know, look itself in the mirror and say, yeah, we got a fair share of the spoils of corporation. And only then will it make sense for people to assume a role as laborer rather than as capitalist in a capitalist society because they know they're going to get a fair share of the spoils if and when they do. And so can do so without uh, spite or envy or any of these other sentiments that tend to undermine stability and make people very unhappy. Um, let me, that's actually a very interesting addition and you're right that that gets less theoretical attention. Let me go back for a minute to the first principle of justice as I understood it. Yeah. Yeah. So that was enabling access to uh, the goods that are necessary for working together. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm wondering about this. Is this a bit circular? Because we're saying you have to work together to get a certain bundle of goods, mm-hmm. right? And then you have to have access to the bundle of goods that are necessary for working together. Why not just say you have to have access to the basic goods rather than access to the basic goods that are necessary for working together? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense, but they're different. Well, I, I see what you mean. Um, they're, they're, two, they're two different conceptions of basic goods, right? So they're the basic goods you need to live well and the basic goods you need to engage in cooperation or to be party to working together. Right. They're two different bundles of goods. Um, they might overlap in various ways. I think the first basic needs stuff where you have to have, you know, access to food, water, housing, stuff like that. Uh, that's going to be a human right. So that's yeah. an independent consideration and any society should provide that. Uh, but remember the addition I also had later, we don't just work together for the production of basic goods, right? We work together for the production of all the things we need to live well and the stuff we desire that allows us to live well together. So it's not just, and so, so, okay, so now we have three bundles of goods. There are basic needs goods, human rights, all to the side with them. Then there are basic goods in the sense of basic because required to engage in cooperation as equal or something like that. That's going to be the education, basic healthcare, stuff like that. It's going to be more than basic needs good because it's actually going to be sufficient to provide you with skills that are employable in a capitalist society and stuff like that. And then thirdly, we have all the other stuff we want, all the other material and non-material benefits of living together and for which we cooperate. And that's going to include all the material needs. We have some cars and phones and commodities in general. It's also going to include, you know, cultural, uh, culturally vibrant society, uh, access to science and education and stuff like that. Um, The whole science production is interesting uh, itself here and might be a good example. So there's the science we need to create stuff sufficient to keep us alive. There's the science we need to create stuff sufficient to allow us to work together. And then there's science, right? The rest of it, which is super interesting and productive in so many ways. Hmm. So I'm thinking about, for example, the difference between this and the sort of more, uh, if you want, uh, American style uh, liberal democracy that's mm-hmm. uh, more uh, focused on or weighted on the fulfillment mm-hmm. of individual potential. 
I don't see, for example, I mean, should I be seeing from the theory as you're explaining it now uh, an across-the-board uh, right for um, access to higher education? Because you don't necessarily get there from the conditions for working together. Right? Depends, so, so the answer has to be, it depends on whether higher education is a precondition for engaging in the cooperative relationship and working together. And you would say, well, it's not. I mean, you can work, you can be a productive member of society by, right. you know, janitorial work. That's right. perfectly productive and you don't need higher education for that. So I agree with that. Um, it doesn't justify equal access to higher education as such. There might be alternative justifications. It might be a good investment for society to provide universal access to higher education and funded. Nor, nor, nor is there, by the way, in Northern Europe, equal access across the board to higher education. Well, I, I know the Danish case there is. Um, I mean, you're, you're, it's not equal access because you're discriminated against based on your uh, high school efforts and achievements. Um, but it's equal opportunity access in that equally uh, skillful people have equal access and education is paid for. So right. access is not regulated by the wealth and income of yourself or your parents. So in that sense, it is equal. Right. Um, I guess what I'm asking about, and I'm curious if this is something that the theory justifies or criticizes, something like, you know, the Dutch model uh, of uh, pretty early on in your uh, uh, high school, or maybe even, I don't remember if it's late middle school or early high school, this uh, uh, bifurcation into uh, an academic uh, track or a more uh, uh, professional track. Right. I know, I know the, um, I know the, uh, the system. I don't know if it justifies it. Um, so I have to say one more thing about higher education. So you're right that there isn't a first principle route to justify equal universal access to higher education, but there could be an equal opportunity, fair equality, to the second principle route to justify uh, access to higher education that is not regulated by your wealth or income or the wealth and income of your parents, right? So to provide equal opportunity, you might have to secure uh, universal access to higher education. But that doesn't mean, right, that is universal access to medical school or law school or anything like that. That can be regulated on the basis of skills and interest. Uh, and so the bifurcation into technical schools and more academic schools, I think is neither justified nor unjustifiable uh, by anything in the theory as I've laid it out mm -hmm. so far. I think what's important is that there's no devaluation, either in the sense of uh, the respect and recognition you get, or in terms of the... Uh, standing you have uh, in, in sort of the eyes of the state um, based on whether you engage in academic or non-academic employment, right? So it's very important for a social democrat to say that anyone who contributes to the working together relationship is of, you know, full value in the eyes of society. And whether they do so by plumbing or sitting in an office talking to their colleagues in academic fashion, that doesn't matter. Uh, in fact, social democrats tend to think that the plumber is more immediately useful than the academic. Um, so there might be, you know, how you invest your resources, 
questions that the principals can highlight. So you should invest your resources to provide um, good access to technical educations and make sure that technical educations are fully funded and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So um, since since the theory, um, as you were explaining it uh, earlier on in the conversation, um, it has both uh, fit and justify ambitions. Um, yeah. I mean, if it has justify ambitions, it also has, I'm assuming, uh, uh, critique ambitions. Uh, so which, which parts of um, existing uh, social institutions in Northern Europe uh, would it critique as it stands? Let me criticize the United States first because I'm better at that. Okay. <laughs> the expat rosy glasses, right? Yeah. Uh, and then try to see uh, what I can do for the uh, Northern European countries. Um, so in an idealized model of the United States, it satisfies something like a Hayekian right liberal theory of justice. It does provide guarantees for all citizens to have their basic needs met. So there is no absolute destitution or poverty of the sort. That wouldn't be in the United States. Of course there is actually, but in an idealized United States, that wouldn't be the case. Uh, you also have no discrimination. You don't have fair equality of opportunity, but you have no discrimination. So careers are gonna be distributed based on talents, uh, rather than who you know, or your race or gender, or anything like that. And then there is the further production of wealth and income is simply determined by market forces. So that's criticizable on social democratic grounds because A, it doesn't guarantee to all members of society the, need, the, the, the preconditions for engaging in the cooperative relationship as an equal. There is insufficient access to healthcare here, right? So you might have sufficient healthcare guaranteed for all to stay alive, but not to actually maintain uh, your physique uh, so that you can be working together with others. Likewise for education. So the first principle is violated. More grossly, the second principle is violated. There's no fair equality of opportunity in this system. Access to education is very much distributed based on the wealth and income uh, or you know, zip code of your parents, basically, even elementary education and even more so for higher education where the privately supplied system fails to secure uh, equal opportunity, uh, even in the ideal, right? Even if you had a perfect realization of the Hayekian ideal, there would not be fair equality of opportunity. And since there isn't fair equality of opportunity, and since labor is not empowered to negotiate as an equal with capital, the capital labor split of both wealth and income is grossly unjust in the United States, in addition to, of course, wealth inequality is being able to undermine whatever equality of opportunity might exist, and also political equality, insofar as it seems that money buys political power. So that those are all good social democratic critiques of the United States, even not as it is, but even if it was living up to its own ideals right. uh, as a again uh, capitalist society. Now, the thing is, I would have it's hard for a social democrat to criticize the ideal of social democracy. So if we said Denmark is a social democratic society, let's take away all the noise of reality and just idealize it up. Well, then there isn't anything left to criticize if I did my work right, because then the fair explanation justifies would be a one-to-one -one match, 
with the ideal. Mm-hmm. So you have to criticize not the ideal, but the reality of social democracies to run any kind of um, critique here. And there, I think there's going to be inadequate security of equal opportunity. There is, there are some people left without, you know, educational opportunities that provide them with access to meaningful employment. There is a fairly high unemployment rate, uh, not as a factor uh, primarily of what people choose, but as a systemic consequence of the way society is designed. So whenever you have unemployment as a systemic feature, a social democrat should be very worried since the basic idea here is that we all both can and should cooperate together, work together. Well, if you leave someone out of it as a systemic feature, say 10-15% of society of the uh, uh, labor able uh, population cannot actually find employment, well, then that's a a failure of the system, right? And that's a severe failure, and you should do something to ameliorate that. In the ideal social democracy, there would be full employment always. The state would have to serve as employer of last resort or something like that. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. So so uh, there well, would you could, you could mm-hmm. reverse the exercise uh, in terms of uh, how you put it earlier and provide yeah. a Hayekian uh, uh, a critique of social democracy and uh, argue that either in principle or in practice it kinds of it kind of ends up with the sort of economic shortcomings and stagnation and slowness that you know you're describing yep uh and and so so uh hayek says that if you try to secure something like equal opportunity as i've described it uh society will become like a nightmare the state will have to be micromanaging all kinds of affairs it shouldn't be involved in and he of course thinks that any sort of idea of the state as employer of last resort will severely destroy uh, the productive powers of the capitalist society since labor will be too empowered. And so in the negotiation with capital, uh, capital is just not going to be able to make any profits and that's going to limit material prosperity overall and to the detriment of all of us. So social democrats have to choose or combine two replies. One of them is, well, tough luck. You know, justice requires that we work together as equals and that might require that we forego quite a bit of material prosperity, but so be it. Justice has priority. The right is prior to the good, and principles of justice regulate how we maximize utility. They are not themselves, you know, subservient to the requirement that we maximize utility. So this is the basic distinction between, I think, Hayekians and social democrats and Rawlsians, is that for the Hayekians, at the end of the day, the good is prior to the right, and justice simply is the set of principles that allow us to maximize utility or social prosperity overall. Right. For social democrats and Rawlsians is the inverse relation. The right is prior to the good. The principles of justice regulate how we can go about pursuing maximal utility. And of course we should maximize utility or maximize social prosperity, but subject to the constraints of justice, right? And if and when you have to forego utility in the aggregate or as average or however you count it, to in order to pursue maximal utility in a just fashion, well, then you should do that, right? You should sacrifice utility if and when you could only maximize utility in unjust fashion. So if it requires, you know, us that we violate rights to maximize utility, we should not maximize utility because rights constrain how we pursue the ends of maximizing utility. Yeah. That's the first reply. 
that sounds very nice in theory, but in practice, right? I mean, at some point, you're foregoing so much material prosperity to provide employment for the last man standing. And at some point, there, you know, Hayekens would be like, yeah, but now you're sacrificing all, right? You're sacrificing all of material prosperity or social prosperity on the altar of justice. Surely there has to be some point where, you know, justice has to be sacrificed a little bit in order to get a heck of a lot of material prosperity. This is just a variant of, you know, the standard disagreement between deontological and teleological theories uh, or between, you know, Kantians and millions or what have you. Um, so there's going to be disagreements here, I think. So actually, okay, so I worry more about this critique than this reply a lot because I do think that you might have to forego a lot of social prosperity for the sake of full employment, say. Or if you look at healthcare, there's, there's a standard problem in healthcare. If you say there's a first principle right to whatever healthcare is necessary to maintain yourself as a working together member of society, well, what about rare debilitating disease, right? That one citizen that we can keep cooperating only by pouring vast, resources into the health of that one individual. Those types of cases are hard, right? If you have a first principle guarantee for access to that healthcare, well then yes, society should sacrifice a heck of a lot of prosperity on the altar of enabling that one individual to engage in the cooperative relationship. I mean, you might, there's sort of neat little tricks you could do where you could buy out that person, right? So you can provide them with resources uh, without requiring that they contribute but i mean wouldn't wouldn't the hayekians say that the sort of northern european model in foregoing its prosperity in the name of the rights to some extent depends on a hayekian subsidy which allows for the kind of economic pace that creates cures for rare diseases that creates economic defense i mean that's been in some ways uh, the American political argument that uh, yeah. Northern European social experiment is made possible by a Hayekian subsidy that provides for, you know, defense and higher rates of R&D and so on and so forth. Right. Um, obviously, scary ways in which that gets manipulated by uh, populists, including the uh, populist in charge right now. Um, there's, there still might be a point there. Right. Um, so there, there are two ways to make, or three ways to make the point, but I'm going to focus on two of them. So first, there's sort of an international perspective where surely the prosperity of Northern Europe as a function of an international world order led by the United States providing both security for these societies as members of NATO, also providing innovation in healthcare and education and, you know, IFO, stuff like that, that then trickles over or trickles across the Atlantic to Northern Europe. And so our, to speak from the perspective of Europe, our prosperity piggybacks on the American prosperity and the American prosperity is driven by the Hayekian model, right? So, you know, there's that. There's also an intergenerational version of the worry where, well, if you secure justice for this generation, you might severely undermine the prosperity of future generations, right? Because you might just 
limit point. economic growth, right? You might cut a couple of percentages of the economic growth of society and run that for 10 generations into the future. That means that even the poor in the future are sacrificed for the sake of the justice of the present, right? So there's both an, a spatial way to raise the worry, which is the international, and a temporal way, which is the intergenerational problem. Um, I, I, so I don't have a worked out reply to either of them. Um, so I don't know if it's true, <laughs> the, the international variety, right? It's, it's, it's a hard counterfactual to run how would the world look like if not for the United States. Um, actually, there's also a, there's, so the third version, I have to talk about it a little bit. The third version is there's also the- through it, aren't we? Hmm? We're kind of living through that counterfactual of how the world would look like without the United States. Well, that's true. That's true. Uh, and Europe might have to, you know, take leadership. Um, no, but the, the third version is I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat worried that the, the current, so moving from ideal theory to the actual, that the current prosperity of Northern Europe is as much a function of a history of injustices and, you know, colonialism and all that, so that if you start with a big enough pool of resources, your success into the future is a function of your starting point, uh, not so much the institutions you create. So there's that worry that, well, you can have the Northern um, European model only if you have this incredibly fortunate starting point, which is tainted by a history of injustices. So there's that type of worry too. Now back to the, uh, the case of America. I think, yeah, I, I, just, I just don't know what to say about that particular counterfactual. I don't. I think there are reasons to doubt it. Uh, so the Northern uh, European democracies weathered the, um, the recession quite well. They seem to be able to maintain economic growth over time. Of course, the security guarantees provided by the United States via NATO are somehow crucial here. Um, but that's we're so far into the non-ideal theory at that point right. that I don't know what to say. Right, right, right. Um, let me let me go. Uh, I mean, I guess stay in the realm of uh, non-ideal theory, but with an emphasis uh, on the theory. Um, to what extent uh, is so? This is a bit on the. Uh, anthropological uh, uh, basis of uh, social democracy. To what extent does um, Northern European uh, social democracy depend on the kind of larger homogeneity uh, ethnically that exists in Northern Europe, than um, a place like the United States? Right. So we're in the uh, we are in the realm of non-ideal theory, but it's, it's the realm of feasibility, right? Which is a fair set of considerations. Right. So is it feasible to adopt this model in countries that are not uh, culturally uh, homogenous, have a shared history, uh, and are sufficiently small? Specifically, since several aspects of the theory from the principle of justice that derives the bundle of goods from the need to work together mm -hmm. to the increased sort of status of labor depend on a degree of solidarity that's kind of more natural in a homogenous society than it is in a heterogeneous one. Right, and as I, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, there's always the danger of free riders, right, who 
accept the goods without contributing uh, their share of the burdens, right. um, which is a really hard problem for social democracies because it actually incentivizes free riding by providing these goods with the expectation of people carrying the burdens, but that expectation might not be met and it's hard to force people to actually engage in productive work, right? So there's the danger that you incentivize free riding. Um, so in terms of, I, I think you're, you're putting your finger on a very sore spot because you do require a very, fairly high degree of solidarity for people to be willing to work hard, pay high taxes with the expectation that others are going to reap part of their rewards. I mean, you, you contribute your share and you receive a share in return, but they, they might not be proportionate. Some people are going to contribute more than others and some people are going to receive less than others. And those things might not go hand in hand. And that is only sustainable if people are willing to actually work hard for not just themselves, but for the benefit, not just of their families, local community, but for society as a whole. And that psychology or that moral psychology might be sustainable only if you have small enough societies uh, and also where you have um, a feeling of homogeneity, right? A feeling of community sustaining uh, society. So there has to be a feeling of community in place for people to engage in that. Those feelings of community can be created in all kinds of ways and sustained by social norms and all kinds of things, uh, but they might be very hard to create and sustain in larger or less homogenous societies. And so there's just no way the United States could be a social democracy because of the scale and the diversity. That, that's the worry, right? Yeah. I think that's a very fair and good worry. Uh, answering it, I mean... It might just be, be true. I don't, so the worry sounds good, uh, but it's a very empirical sort of worry. And so I would have to talk to social psychologists and sociologists and game theorists and economic, economists to actually work through how deep the worry is and what the possible reply options would be. I mean, it's not primarily a worry about the United States. I mean, in, in some ways, it's a question about the sort of semi-invisible um, condition of social democracy, both as a theory and as a practice, namely to what extent does it depend on a more solidarity-driven view of the good life? So let me uh, briefly articulate the worry again and then try a few replies. Um, so the worry is uh, that social democracy is sustainable only if there's a high degree of solidarity between the members of society and that that high degree of solidarity is going to be sustainable only if you have a sufficiently homogenous and small uh, society. Uh, so people have a sense of community in addition to their sense of society and because of that sense of community are willing to work hard uh, for the benefit of others and not merely for their own benefit. So my replies, it's a, it's a, I think it's a great question and it's very hard to give an adequate reply without actually doing some real empirical work that I haven't done. And I wanna say yet, but that's that's hopeful. Uh, so one part of the reply is, I don't like to articulate the worries much about, as a, as a worry about homogeneity, because it makes it sound as if the question is primarily one of race or ethnicity or something like that. I mean, there's going to be the sense of solidarity and the sense of community, which I think can be created and sustained between 
not ethnically or racially alike people. So it can be sustained in a diverse society. But how do you sustain, create and sustain that moral psychology of community in a large and diverse society? And in particular, a society where there might be inflow and outflow of members. And that's always, always dangerous. So if you don't have an ongoing relationship over time, it's much harder to create and sustain this uh, psychology of community. And there's sort of very good game theory reasons uh, for that. If you don't have uh, iterated play between the players, well, then it's just much harder to build the kind of trust that you need. And the probability of iterated play is going to be a, a factor of whether people can be expected to stay in society, for a long time over generations, families, but also, of course, of the size of society itself. Uh, insofar as you have a smaller society, the probability of iterated play with any given player is increased. Um, so in this, I think social, social democracy is, as in so many other ways, a bit uncomfortably perched between a more liberal approach and a more socialist approach. So the more liberal approach, the Hayekian, doesn't have this problem because it relies only on self-interest to generate the productivity of society. And it's very limited. Uh, it has a very limited need for a sense of community and solidarity. It's run by, you know, the interest of the Baker Butcher, etc., the Adam Smith quote, and all that. It is the unleashing of self-interest in a spontaneous order process that drives the Hayekian train to maximal social prosperity. And that's part of the beauty of it. No one has to feel that they're doing anything for anyone other than themselves and their families. And there's no need for social engineering uh, to, to create and sustain this particular moral psychology. The socialist, on the other hand, as a very strong version of this problem, insofar as real communism is possible only if you have a complete sense of community so that everybody are willing to contribute everything they can in expectation of receiving just what they need. So from each according to ability to each right. according to need, that type of principle. But socialists are very happy with, most socialists are very happy with that type of utopianism. They say, well, we don't know what human nature is capable of. We're malleable. And over time, with the right social engineering, a bit of luck, we can hope to cultivate this moral psychology. Also, we don't mind that we're presenting socialist society as a utopia. The critical import that socialists are primarily interested in is equally powerful whether the socialist alternative is fully realizable or not. You can criticize capitalism as being alienating, exploitative, unfair, leading to misery and destitution. You can make all those criticisms and you can hold up the socialist alternative without the social, uh, socialist alternative having to be realizable, right? So the feasibility constraints tend to worry uh, socialists less. Now, social democracy between the, you know, we, we don't worry about this liberal side and the socialists, we don't worry about it, but, you know, because I, I do think it has to be realizable. I'm trying to fit, explain, justify a particular type of society. And, of course, it has to be uh, of the type that can be created and sustained, I think. And so these feasibility constraints should worry me. Now, the, on the other hand, being between the liberal and the socialists give me some tools for replying to it. So... Social Democrats do embrace a capitalist society and the primary motivator for engaging in the economy in a capitalist society is going to be your self-interest, what you can do for yourself and the family and your immediate circle of acquaintances. Uh, what's needed is the sense of solidarity sufficient to motivate people to 
cultivate their talents not merely out of self-interest, but also because they want to be productive members of society. And in particular, to pay taxes of a sort that can sustain the provision of all the essential goods that are sufficient to enable all members of society to engage in social cooperation and secure fair equality of opportunity. Universal adequate healthcare is very expensive. Universal access to education and higher education is very expensive. And those two sources of uh, benefit have to be provided equally to all independently of whether they contribute, right? And so there's where, that's where you really need the solidarity. Mm -hmm. um, so I need less solidarity than the socialist needs, uh, but more than the liberal. Yeah. Uh, and the question is, can that be created and sustained in a small, uh, in a large non-homogenous society? And that's an empirical question. Yeah. It's going to be probably a sliding scale. So it's harder and harder the larger society or the more uh, diverse the society. It might be just a sliding scale where social democracy passes some threshold of realizability, falls below that threshold of realizability at some uh, size and um, diversity, at least with, you know, human beings as we, we think they are at, at the present. Again, human nature is fully malleable and we're certainly capable of, there's nothing in human nature to prevent our capacity for community and community solidarity to be extended quite a bit. Um, how far I mean, is it, it? It's certainly a question that's politically on the radar in the United States right now with the Sanders candidacy, with the Warren candidacy. Yeah. With, yeah, know, the ways yeah. in so-called democratic socialism is like yeah. like social democracy in uh, Northern Europe. So I mean, I think it's a live question here. Yeah. Um, maybe uh, to uh, uh, wrap up, um, one sort of um, uh, uh, either question or uh, uh, potential uh, suggestion to uh, uh, think through some of the ways in which social democratic. Uh, uh, theory meets the uh, future of work. So mm -hmm. um, yeah. we've talked about this briefly uh, yeah. in previous conversations, but on a lot of uh, uh, predictions, on the most conservative predictions, we're looking at about a 30% uh, reduction in the scope of work over the next uh, generation because of automation. Some parts of Northern Europe, specifically Finland, are uh, experimenting with guaranteed basic income. Uh, um, so I guess one question, uh, one question that I'm very curious about is what and how social democracy um, confronts uh, and deals with the automation of the means of production uh, the disappearance slash shrinkage slash complete transformation of the labor landscape does the current version of the theory especially if um as you articulated a good deal about it does depend on uh labor and does depend mm -hmm. on the status of labor mm -hmm. what happens to the theory when the role of labor shrinks mm -hmm. yeah it's a, it's a it's a good and interesting question. I don't know that um, I accept the premise of the question. So sure, there will be automation uh, and uh, human resources will play an increasingly low role in the 
sort of direct pr production of commodities. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that seemed to be a given. So, and also the, the distribution of commodities, the whole transportation sector, sector a lot of jobs will disappear there. Um, but there's still a need for, for human labor in, in a broader sense. I mean, we produce other things than commodities, right? Cultural enrichments are also uh, part of the wealth we create by cooperation. Uh, healthcare, again, education, science, knowledge production and dissemination, education in higher and, and uh, elementary schools. You know, all that is also work we do and there's just going to be more hands for doing that work and so we can create more of that good stuff that's my sort of initial uh, reply to this there's a very interesting sci-fi novel by uh, kim stanley robinson i think it's called 2312 where he sort of imagines this post um uh post robotic robotified society where people don't actually have to work to produce stuff but they still work to produce stuff, right? They just produce poetry and all kinds of stuff. Uh, it's just that they don't produce commodities as much as previously. Mm -hmm. So I think the, 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 the danger for social democrats here is going to be more along the line of how do you secure a fair distribution of the wealth if and when labor does not play an essential role in the production processes? Because it disempowers labor in the negotiation with capital of the capital labor split. And it clearly empowers capital tremendously if they can buy robots instead of human resources on the input side of production, right? And so that makes some, that, that, that could be a very serious objection to my idea that you can secure a fair distribution of the benefits of the wealth of society through empowering labor in the negotiation with capital about the, in the no. distribution of the capital labor split, because this seems to disempower labor tremendously. Uh, and that's where something like Finland's basic income guarantee might be a relevant part of the reply. I'm not, I, I think these uh, universal basic income schemes are, I don't, I don't, I don't buy. I mean, they might be a stopgap measure um, mm. for for certain types of uh, poverty. Uh, I don't think I don't see any theoretical need for them presently in a social democratic theory of justice. Whereas I do see a theoretical need for it in, say, a libertarian theory of justice, which would otherwise allow people to fall into national yeah. institution. I, I guess I go back to the beginning of our conversation where you articulate that analytically one of the precepts of the theory, one of the bases of the theory is that uh, we can't generate the basic yeah. resources needed uh, for living uh, well alone, that in a way labor is required for yeah. generating the basic, uh, um, the basic goods uh, for living, yeah, that might be decreasingly true. Yeah, not yeah. without yeah. without any science fiction sort of fantasy. Uh, yeah, I mean it's not true right now. Um, yeah. It might. I mean, and we might be moving in the direction of a type of society where social democracy is no longer the appropriate theory of justice. I'm not claiming that social democracy answers any and all questions about economic justice. But I do think it is the better theory for a particular type of society where you have these preconditions in place. Yeah. If and when the preconditions change, social democracy might not be the answer anymore. I yeah. think that, that's true. Uh, and, the, and, and so of course the stinger here is the preconditions seem to be changing, right? 
in exactly wow. the direction where you're, you're pointing. I don't know that they will change that much. I think human resources are going to be allocated differently, but it's still going to be an essential input uh, to the productive processes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in a way, that might be something interesting to look at about, for example, specifically some of the areas that you take to be central to, you know, the theory, namely education yeah. and healthcare and the yeah. impact of automation in those specific areas. And, you know, in a way you could at least outline how to answer the question. Um, yeah. Yeah. Also, I think, I think, so what do you see, uh, education might be a good example because you had this whole uh, craze about um, uh, these massive online courses, yeah. MOOCs, um, and everybody were screaming and I might have screamed, screamed a bit myself, uh, that this is going to be the end of higher education as we know it. And there's not going to be a need for college professors. We just need one Michael Sandel to upload his lectures on justice and then we can fire all the philosophers. Yeah. That's not what's happening, right? I mean, there's, uh, there's gonna, there's, there's instead there's a, a lot of people who didn't have access to higher education who suddenly have access via Coursera and via YouTube and via all these things, mm -hmm. but it doesn't, it hasn't yet meant that there isn't a need for college professors like you and I. Mm -hmm. Some small liberal arts colleges in the United States seem to be threatened. I don't know that the threat to them is driven by the availability of online courses uh, yeah. at this point. So, so far, uh, the, the, the initial belief that this is going to change higher education dramatically to a very limited human resource needing uh, production system hasn't simply hasn't borne out and i don't see it bearing out uh, any time mm -hmm. soon yeah so, I mean, well i mean one interesting as you know i've been looking at this in uh, other contexts I mean, one interesting uh, facet of economic life here for example in mm -hmm. the United states is that a lot of middle management decision making if not yet a ton of middle management jobs uh, has been automated yeah. Uh, decision making about uh, uh, credit allocation, decision making about loan uh, approval, about hiring, uh, about uh, 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 sentencing, police force allocation, and so on and so forth. So far, the tasks have been that have been automated have been discrete enough so that not a lot of jobs themselves have had to be automated, mm -hmm. but the trend is towards not general artificial intelligence, but to have a lot of these specific tasks of labor automated such that in the end, you know, for each of us, there's an aggregation of tasks that they do so that even if you're replaced by a group of stupid but focused algorithms, you're still <laughs> replaced in the end. Um, so, I mean, I do think it's a, it might become an interesting question sooner rather than later, you know, what happens when at least part of the means of production uh, are automated. I'm not sure mm -hmm. that renders social democracy less relevant, but it might, it might imply, you know. Yeah. Just no, it's a very, it's a very interesting set of questions. Um, and as I said, it may be that, there are preconditions for the relevance of social democracy. It answers a set of questions that won't be the questions of the future. No. This is this is a possibility, and then we'll we'll need another theory. I still think the, you have time to write the book and have it become a bestseller before. It is uh, 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 
well, I need a lot of time to write the book, and the bestseller <laughs> part is, uh, you know, not not the aim anyway. But yeah, uh, no, I'll write the book. If nothing else, it'll be like a testament to a to a particular type of um, testament to a single organization. <laughs> Um, there's also there, there's sort of a standard uh, objection to roles, uh, which seems to apply also to what I'm doing, which is he's, you know, theorizing for a Westphalian world, you know, post-Westphalian world where nation states seem to be the locus of political organization, which is increasingly not true. We live in a globalized economy and so on and so forth. Yeah. Um, and that too can be raised, I think, as an objection to social policy. I, I don't, I don't know uh, that that's, but it's, it's it's something I should think about, right? How to answer that uh, set of questions about no. increasingly no. globalized economy. On the other hand, I mean, we still live in nation states, and that is the primary form of political organization. Right. Yeah, uh, and social democracy seems to have a lot of things to say about why we need to worry about uh, a globalized economy where capital is not made to play by rules that ensure a fair uh, split of the capital labor, right. uh, capital uh, labor split. So, yeah, well, thank you. This has been very, very cool. And of course. It's an amazing project. Thank you, Nir. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.